بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وشلون لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وشلون محمد عبده ورسوله أما بعد First of all, I have to kind of apologize. I have a pretty strong headache, and I tried my normal cure, which is coffee. It didn't do anything, <laughs> so I've tried now some medication. So the result is, I think you're going to uh, get a much more mellow me than uh, normally, inshallah. But hopefully, the information coming out will still be uh, correct, inshallah. To discuss some of the causes behind the existence of uh, extremism and in other words some of the factors that kind of work both within the Islamic society and even outside of the Islamic society that cause the appearance of this phenomena, this munkar that we have spoken about in some detail yesterday. First of all we have to realize that the causes of extremism are numerous. And there are many things that lead people to take extreme positions and do extreme acts. And obviously we're not going to discuss all of them here. And in fact some of them are kind of like things that uh, even non-Muslims discuss discussing the concept of extremism like psychological factors that some people might have that may lead them to uh, extreme acts beyond what what they call normal human beings would uh, would would go to and inshallah I want of course obviously to discuss some of the things that are more specific to Islamic cases and one of the the key things that we can see behind almost every group of extremism in the past or extremist positions and extremist views one of the key things that we see behind them is an ignorance with respect to the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so ignorance in itself is one of the key factors that drive people to extremist positions and extremist acts. And this brings up the importance of the fact that an emotional attachment to Islam, I mean, being Muslim in, in, in the sense of, of loving Islam and wanting the best for Islam, and letting one's emotions drive one's acts, this is not sufficient in Islam. Of course, you have to have a love for Islam, you have a love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have a love for the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu you have a love for the other Muslims, your heart feels whenever the other Muslims are hurt or suffering. But when it comes to taking action, when it comes to holding views and beliefs, you cannot just rely on an emotional attachment to Islam. You have to have the knowledge of what Islam is and you have to have the knowledge of what Islam calls for and requires of you under different circumstances. And in fact many times an emotional attachment to Islam or the result of an emotional attachment to Islam can harm Islam much more than benefit Islam. You know someone may say that he loves Islam and Islam is really in his heart but out of his ignorance, he may do something that can damage Islam and, and damage the Muslims to a great extent. Because he's not, even though he's in his heart he has love for Islam, he's not allowing actually the Quran and the Sunnah to guide and to direct his actions. So this is an essential and very important point that I must stress here at the outset. That an emotional attachment to Islam, of course, is part of the iman, part of the faith. But when it comes to doing the deeds and taking positions and views, that has to be based on the knowledge from the Quran and Sunnah. <clears throat> there are people who 
go beyond, for example, the limits of the Sharia, the example set by the Prophet Muhammad and they do that as they think they do that out of their love for Allah or for Islam. But as in the example that I, I, I believe I gave yesterday, and the, for example, the Prophet Muhammad when he remained patient in Mecca, and when the Muslims around him re- remained patient in Mecca, and they did not resort to the use of force, the legal use of force, until Allah had given them permission to do so, their remaining patient was also out of their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their love for this deen. Because this is what Allah has commanded them under those circumstances. So out of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they obeyed what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had ordered them to do. And so therefore they remained patient. Even though sometimes when you, rem- when you have to re- be patient, sometimes you may witness events you may witness things that are happening to your brother Muslims that are very hard for your heart to take. And your heart just cries and cannot continue to watch what is happening to your brother Muslims and sisters, for example. But your real love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and your real love for this deen will be demonstrated by the fact that you will not act in any other way except what is approved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the same way that the Prophet Muhammad and the Sahaba did not act and behave in any way other than what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had approved for them. And as I said, I think we discussed some of those points yesterday. <clears throat> and in, in particular, when looking at the, that the extremists, like for example, Lawayha uh, in his book, he mentions a number of different aspects in which they are ignorant of the deen, and this ignorance has caused them to uh, stray from the correct path and go to one of the extremes, which we used to have on the board there. You know, the two extremes. I can just refer to them without writing them up again, right? <clears throat> so, for example, he talks about the fact that they are ignorant of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are ignorant of the sunnah. They are ignorant with respect to the methodology. I and mean, this is, uh, this is also, this is also a very important point. And in fact, in particular in the, in the United States or many communities, and in the methodology of reasoning, or like for example, what is known as usul fiqh, and how to get from the text of the Quran or the text of the hadith to a conclusion or belief. And in this process or this methodology is something well defined in Islam. And it's one of the key aspects that we have to study. What they call usul fiqh or Islamic legal theory or methodology. Because it is an ignorance of these aspects that lead many people to coming to conclusions that are incorrect. <clears throat> they are also ignorant with respect to the goals of the Sharia, ignorant with respect to the Sunnah or societal laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They demonstrate ignorance with respect to the Arabic language and history and so forth. I want, uh, as I said, I'll just, inshallah discuss a couple of these. Ignorance with the respect to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We already gave the uh, classic example of that yesterday. In which the Khawarij, in their uh, debating with Ali, and when, in their discussion about Ali, when they concluded that Ali was a disbeliever, and they were, they were basing it on the fact that Ali and Muawiyah, they had accepted arbiters, two of the, the Sahaba, to try to come together and debate the issue, the dispute between them, to come to a peaceful solution. And they told Ali that if you accept this arbiter, Hakim, then you are actually making kufr. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the, in, uh, in the hukmu illa lillah, that the rule 
is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you accept anybody else to make a decision, then you are committing kufr. So they are taking a verse of the Qur'an. And this is one of the dangers of almost every extremist group. Basically, in general, if someone is going to come to you with falsehood, with bottle, he has to mix some truth in there, or at least mix some something that will appeal to you. So when someone comes to you and he's quoting verses of the Qur'an or hadith of the Prophet it is very strong. Uh, it can be very forceful, very effective, even to convince you of something which is bought, which is false. And in fact, Ali told them that this statement that you've made, this is a statement which is true, but you intend by it, what you mean by it is something which is false. And to show you the, the kind of, uh, the kind of ignorance and how great their ignorance is, Ignorance and arrogance, many times go together. Their ignorance is so great when you think about it, and yet their arrogance is so great, even they are talking to one of the companions of Prophet Muhammad And they're telling him he's a kafir because he doesn't understand this verse of the Qur'an. And unfortunately many people, they, they may not think about it in that way, but they have the same kind of uh, arrogance when it comes to the Qur'an. You tell them the companions understood this way, and they're like... What did the companion do? Yeah, they just lived 23 years with the problem. Muhammad That doesn't mean much. If you go to many places in the Quran, actually even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows us the concept of bringing arbiters. And you can find also hadith with Prophet in which the Prophet accepted the idea that there are human beings who can arbitrate and try to make peace between believers. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one of the verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ شِقَاقَ بَيْنِهِمَا فَبْعَثُوا حَكَمًا مِنْ أَهْلِهِ وَحَكَمًا مِنْ أَهْلِهَا إِنْ يُرِيدَ إِصْلَاحًا يُوَفِّقِ اللَّهُ بَيْنَهُمَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that if you fear a breach between the two, talking about between the husband and the wife, then appoint uh, two arbiters, uh, one from, uh, appoint, I'm sorry, appoint an arbiter from his family and a part, uh, an uh, arbiter from hers. And if they wish for peace, Allah will cause them, uh, will cause their reconciliation. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, send hakam, hakam, someone who will judge between them, make peace with, between them. Now obviously, these people who do this kind of act, as in the case between Ali and Muawiyah, they should base the decision on the knowledge of the Qur'an and Sunnah. But still they are making a decision, they are arbitrating, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala approves that kind of act. This is the same kind of act that is described in this verse in the Qur'an that led the Khawarij to call Ali a kafir. And when they called him a kafir, they broke off from the Muslim community. They began to fight against the Muslims. They said all of these people who are outside of the Khawarij, all of them are kuffar. All of these Muslims are kuffar. As the Prophet ﷺ described them, they fight the people of Islam and they leave the people of the idols alone. And if some, if a mushrik came to them and said, I am a mushrik and I want to hear what's the book of Allah, they will give him, they will grant him peace and asylum based on the verse in the Quran that if they come to you asking to hear the, the, the word of Allah, then give them respite so they can hear the word of Allah. But if they come to them saying that they're a Muslim, then they will kill them. Because they're a Muslim but outside of the Khawarij, so they are kuffar. And the whole root of all that, the whole root of all that killing, all that bloodshed, goes back to this incident and goes back to this source that they completely misunderstood a verse in the Qur'an. That if they would just have taken the time to see what the Qur'an is saying in other verses and listen to any of the people of knowledge, they would have easily have seen their falsehood. 
And that is why actually when some of the Sahaba actually went to the Khawarij to debate them, you find sometimes thousands of the Khawarij, they left their bid'ah. Because some people are, are, their intention is good, but they don't have the knowledge. That's why I said that emotional attachment to Islam is not enough. When Ibn Abbas went to debate with the Khawarij, the, some of the narrations say thousands of them left their bid'ah. Because it was easy to refute their bid'ah. So if you have the good intention, the knowledge comes to you, inshallah, you'll come back to the, to the correct, uh, to the correct way. <coughs> Ignorance of the sunnah also, and the way they, <coughs> and we talked about that yesterday, the way they misinterpret, for example, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ about al-jama'ah and bayah and all of these, uh, kind of things. <coughs> One of the as one of the important aspects that they show again a complete and a disregard for some of the main principles in the in the Sharia, and that is the concept of al-maqasir al-Sharia, the goals or the overriding purposes of the Sharia. The scholars like Ash-Shatabi and others, they have, in their reading of the Qur'an hadith, they have found that the Sharia is trying to protect, not just protect, but also to establish and preserve and improve basic goals. And these goals are, for example, the deen, the religion. And the establishment of the deen and its preservation, this is one of the main Goals of the Sharia. The preserving of life and proper life is also one of the main goals of the Sharia. But religion in general takes precedence over life. That's why if the religion is attacked, we have jihad in which someone may lose his life. And the other goals of the Sharia, for example, like uh, protecting the mental capabilities and familial relations and uh, or, or I mean, uh, wealth. And these these things which are derived from the Quran and Sunnah are based on the fact that even in the Sharia, in the Sharia, there is the concept, there is a clear concept that an act. Even if an act is proper and correct in itself, if that act may lead to more harm than good, you do not do that act. Especially if we're talking, we're talking, especially in the, in the general sense, societal sense or community sense. If in, uh, from a Sharia point of view, if the harm of something, and again, even that Sharia point of view, we're talking about the Sharia definition of harm. If the harm of something, for example, if one of these five things that are meant to be protected, if the harm of something is greater than the good, then you do not go about with that act. <clears throat> we gave the example yesterday of the man who came to the Prophet ﷺ, and he told the Prophet ﷺ to be just. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, woe to you, if I were not just, who is going to be just? So when one of the companions asked him for permission to kill that man, it is very clear that the Prophet ﷺ did not say that the ruling concerning this man is that he is not supposed to be killed. He didn't say, no, you can't kill him because the punishment in this case is not killing. That's not what he said. He said that, uh, he said, may Allah not allow it to be the case that people will say that Muhammad is killing his companions and killing his associates. And that the people are becoming Muslim and being being around the Prophet Muhammad and he kills them. This of course would be very, this could be used and be very very detrimental for the spreading of Islam. In another case, the Prophet ﷺ told his wife Aisha, رضي الله, رضي الله عنها, 
that the Kaaba was not rebuilt on its proper foundations. Or I should say on the foundations that Ibrahim had originally established. So the Prophet ﷺ told Aisha that if your people had not recently, just recently embraced Islam, in other words the Quraysh, who even before Islam were devoted to the Kaaba, and many of them became Muslim, you know, after the conquest of Mecca or at the conquest of Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ said that if your people had not just recently embraced Islam, I would have rebuilt it on its proper foundation. So in other words, what the Prophet ﷺ was saying that you knock the Kaaba down and rebuild it on its proper foundation, it's good to have it on its proper foundation, but the fitna and the trial and the harm that that's going to cause of building, of knocking down the Kaaba for these people who have now just recently come into Islam is going to be greater than the benefit of rebuilding the Kaaba on its, on its foundation. And the Prophet says, if it, were, if it were not for that fact, I would have rebuilt it. So this is an essential principle in Islam. Especially for the da'wah, especially when we're talking about the health and the well-being of the Muslim community as a whole. That you cannot give yourself the right to do some kind of act when you know that that act is going to bring harm to the Muslim community, to the Muslims as a whole. And if you think about, for example, the incident on September 11th, let us assume that all of the statements about it are true, and what people claim, what governments claim are true. And just from the Sharia point of view, if you are sitting, for example, you have a band of Muslims, hundreds, maybe thousands, sitting in some far off land, with no real weaponry, no real army, no real power to speak of. And not only that, the opposing country has already threatened you. And is already upset with you because you gave an oil contract to an Argentinian company instead of an American company. And they've already threatened you. That look, either you behave with us or we'll send bombs to you. And so then you go out and you do something like what happened on that day. What positive effect could any Muslim expect from that? And forget about the question of innocent people being killed, whether it's correct according to Sharia and so forth. All of that is irrelevant if it is clear that there's not going to be any positive outcome from that act whatsoever. And I don't know what kind of positive outcome any Muslim could have expected from an act of that nature. And in fact, to the point that one reason why <clears throat> so many conspiracy theories are around is because it's imaginable, imaginable that any Muslims could sit down and think that there's going to be some positive outcome. To give, for example, the kuffar an excuse to attack another Muslim land. And for sure even Israel is going to use that to their advantage also. While at the same time you know you're not going to have anything to defend yourself the only result is you're going to put the Muslim Ummah in a great pit with no real foreseeable benefit whatsoever. In this kind of act, you have to look at it in the light of the Sharia, whether or not the benefit of that kind of act could, could in any way outweigh the negative result to the Muslims, to the Ummah, to the Deen of Islam, to the spread of Islam. This is what, this is, this is having knowledge of the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The real ulama, they are the ones who understand this point and they analyze these kind of acts within the guidance of the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not enough even to say that the act itself is permissible or not. But even if the act is permissible, what is going to be 
the long-run result for the Muslims, the Muslim Ummah as a whole, is it going to be positive or is it going to be negative? <clears throat> we also see many Muslims are unaware of the Sunnah of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and how they're supposed to behave during times of iftila. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, we know that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has the knowledge; it's all knowing, it's all wise. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees things in this world based on laws that he has given us some clues of in the Quran and Sunnah. And we even see in the stories of the prophets of old and in, and in particular in the, story, in the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And in his actions we see some of these sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We see that there are times in which the Muslims have to be patient. We see, for example, in the, in the case of Uhud, we see that there are times in which, because of the actions of the Muslim themselves, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may inflict them with some kind of trial, some kind of test, some kind of defeat. You know, if you all remember what happened in the battle of Uhud, when the archers, when the Prophet ﷺ told them not to leave, no matter how they see the fighting going, they're not supposed to leave their position. And yet when they saw the fighting turning to the benefit and the victory of the Muslims, they feared that they were losing out of the conquest, so they left their position and they started to enter the fight. And as we know, this is how the kuffar came from that place and inflicted at least a partial defeat, a real defeat, upon the young Muslim Ummah at that time. This defeat was the result of their own actions. This is the result of their own actions of the Muslims. But in general also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in many places in the Qur'an that trials are going to come to us. That we should not expect that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will enter us in the Jannah or leave us just by saying that we are believers. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَحَسِبَ النَّاسُ أَنْ يُتْرَكُوا وَأَنْ يَقُولُوا آمَنَّا وَهُمْ لَا يُفْتَنُونَ وَلَقَدْ فَتَدْنَا الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ فَلْيَعْلَمَنَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا وَلْيَعْلَمَنَّ الْكَاذِبِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do mankind think that they'll be left alone upon saying we believe and that they will not be put to trials? We did try those before them and we will certainly, uh, and Allah will certainly know and show those who are true from those who are false. <clears throat> so these trials come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they are part of the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the individual who sees what is happening to the Muslim Ummah, has to realize that this is part of the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He has to take some steps when he sees what is wrong with the Muslim Ummah. He has to see, he has to take some steps. But he cannot go beyond what is allowed for him. He cannot go beyond what is his ability according to the Quran wa Sunnah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us in times like that. That we have to have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ مَسْتَطَعْكُمْ And you have taqwa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala according to what, the best of your ability. Given your circumstances, you do what is uh, in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as long as what you're doing is in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you are pleasing, to Allah, uh, pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your acts. Then you leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And does your goal or does your, uh, it is your responsibility to do the act that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within the limits of the sharia. It is not, for example, your responsibility all of a sudden to create an Islamic state and overthrow all the governments that exist and overthrow the kuffar and defeat the kuffar if it is not within your building.
الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيد محمد وشرون لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وشرون محمد عبده ورسوله أما بعد the people who and who became specialists in the deen who went to like religious schools and so forth in general this lot this group was made up of the worst students in the society. In other words, in many places, basically it was, if you cannot get into the more important schools, the more important subjects, if you cannot get into, for example, engineering or sciences and so forth, then you're stuck with either Arabic literature or the deen. So what happens is you get people who study the deen, and because they study the deen, and because they got some kind of degree, they are respected as the scholars of the deen. But the the people with the best minds in the society, the people who could really think, who really had the mental faculties, they were all pushed into other sciences and other areas. And these are the people that we really need to analyze the situation of the Muslim Ummah, to analyze events and know how to react to them in the proper Islamic way. And in fiqh, especially the fiqh of like what we could call current events or know how to behave under different circumstances, this requires a, an academic background, real mental faculties to be able to understand and analyze and come to a conclusion. Fiqh is not just memorizing text and being able to spit out the text when you are asked about something. But fiqh actually requires that people have the ability to understand phenomena, whether it's economic phenomena or political phenomena, sociological phenomena. How to, You have to first understand the concept itself. What is going on before you can make a fiqh conclusion? And so the best minds of the Muslim Ummah, they were pushed into other sciences and the role of the deen and the role of the scholars or the, I should say the Islamic studies, these things, these were left for those people who could not get into those other areas. And in addition, and in the addition to that also, in many of the schools also, the place that was given to the religious studies. Maybe there'd be one course a day or one course a week and it would always be like the last course where everybody's exhausted and just want to get out. And the quality of the teacher usually also was not the best quality. So the whole, <coughs> the whole system in many Muslim countries for the past 100 to 150 years was discouraging the real development of scholars, people who had in-depth knowledge and understanding such that they could lead the Muslims. And if you are lacking those kinds of scholars, or for some reason the scholars that are there are not trustworthy or they're not willing to speak. You know the famous... Uh, <clears throat> the famous uh, quote from Imam Ahmed about whether or not the scholar can resort to tuqya. Yani that, for example, if the scholar is asked a question, does he have the right to resort to this principle that out of fear of some negative consequence and so forth, that he can lie and not say the truth? So Imam Ahmed's answer to that was, if the scholar resorts to tuqya and the ignorant is ignorant, when will the truth be told? And how is the truth going to be known if the scholars are not speaking and you cannot expect the ignorant to know what is the truth and if the scholars are fearful and not willing to speak then when is the truth going to be spoken? And who is it who is going to come up and say the truth? And this is what has led to, for example, if we're talking, let's say in particular, the, the movement in, the, in Egypt, 
And by the way, the movement in Egypt, and why I stress that movement in Egypt, is because it's also very relevant to the movement that still exists nowadays, the kind of extremist movements that exist nowadays. So when people don't have ulama, they turn to others like themselves, who are ignorant like themselves, and they give fatwas for each other, and it's like the blind leading the blind. And what can you expect? You know, for example, the, some of these extremist movements in Egypt that developed in the prisons in Egypt, they have some of the same thinking as the Khawarij that we talked about. And when it was pointed out to them by other people in prison who had maybe a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more experience, who were trying to advise them and saying, look, you're going too far, they would tell them, your beliefs, these ideas that you're promoting are the same ideas that were promoted by the Khawarij way back when. And they had no clue who were the Khawarij. They never heard of them before. And they say, for example, if you go to a Shahrastani's book on the, the groups in Islam, you'll find the same arguments that you make. And they said, you know, I've never heard of that book. One of them said, oh, I remember seeing that in the library somewhere. <laughs> So if the scholars are not fulfilling their role, first of all, if you don't have the scholars and you're not developing the real scholars, and I think I touched upon that, uh, this kind of uh, importance of this in my, in my lecture last night, so I'll not get into it here. But obviously, if you don't have the real scholars, and the real scholars are not willing to come out and speak and guide, then you don't have the people who will be able to see what are the extremes and what is the middle road that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it can be expected under circumstances like that, that people will fall into one extremism or another extremism. Most of the, um, the factors that I've been speaking about so far deals with internal situations within the Muslim Ummah. However, there's no question that the international arena the international situation is also greatly responsible or a great factor in the development and the spreading of extremist views among Muslims. You know, for example, if you if you go to what is quoted from Bin Laden, for example, you know, after the attacks on the World Trade Center and all that stuff about or they hate our freedoms and so forth. I don't know who came up with that, but that's... <laughs> if you go, for example, to the people that they claim are the ones responsible, what, the, what are they talking about? They're talking about, for example, the situation in Palestine, the situation in Iraq, the military presence, and for example, in Saudi Arabia. Even Bin Laden referred to the bombing of, uh, of uh, Hiroshima in, in Japan. What was that even if you... And unfortunately, Americans are not really into their own history. Unless you're talking about maybe the history of basketball and baseball. And something like that. Otherwise, they're not even... The, even the bombing, the dropping of the atomic bomb in Japan, is well recognized by many American historians. The purpose of that was not to defeat the Japanese. Because the Japanese were already ready to surrender. They didn't need to drop those bombs in order for the war to come to an end. That's the official excuse that they give now. Oh, we dropped those bombs. Yes, we killed so many, hundreds of thousands, but it was for a good cause to, cause, to save so many other people from dying. But historians know that wasn't the case. The war was coming to an end. The Japanese were ready to surrender. Now what's the theory of why they dropped the bomb? I will, uh, if you want to read about that, you can read about it on your, <laughs> on your own. <clears throat> In general, I don't uh, discuss political issues, uh, details of political issues too much. And the reason I, I don't discuss it is... Uh, there are a number of reasons. So let me just preface some of the points that I'm going to make by, uh, by giving these, uh, these introductory points. 
One of the reasons, of course, is that there's so much that we as Muslims need to know about our own deen itself. That if you have a conflict of time, what are you going to spend your time on? It's much better for us Muslims to spend our time knowing and really understanding what our deen is telling us and what it is we're supposed to believe, how we're supposed to behave and so forth. And also the, when it comes to political, political issues, it's very easy to go to an extreme. Extremists everywhere. It's very easy to go overboard. The general principles, especially of international politics and so forth, they are clear. Just even from the Quran and Sunnah, you can understand what is going on in the world. But it's very easy to go into detail and political issues and that will take up your whole time. And for example, the Arab-Israeli conflict, there's over a thousand books written just here in the United States are available. And if you want to get into it and, you know, say, oh, so-and-so said this on such and such date, and, and this could take up your whole life just studying this this conflict. And I don't think there's any need for us in general to get, and this is not even to speak about the fact that now every day there's newspapers and the Internet and all of that other information, that if you get, if you allow yourself to get too much involved in it, and it will be something that will, it will cost you. It will cost you in the sense that that time that you're spending learning all that stuff, you could have been maybe learning just the basics of that and spending your other time learning things which are more important to you. <clears throat> Plus, and this is a very uh, important point, and when you read about uh, international politics and what is going on, what is going on in the 20th century, what is going on in the, in the 21st century, especially with respect to the Muslim Ummah and how the Muslim Ummah is being, uh, treated. Unless you have some good understanding of the Quran and Sunnah, unless you have some basics of Iman in your heart, it is very easy to be overcome by these things such that it will drive you to do some acts or drive you to some positions which are extremist positions. And if you just concentrate on reading about these kind of things and you do not have the proper imani kind of balance in your, in your, in your heart and in your mind, these kinds of things, if you read them, and if you're aware of what has happened to the Muslim Ummah by the Kufar, it can easily drive you to extremist positions, extreme acts. And it is really one of the major causes, and we have to recognize the fact, it is one of the major causes behind the extremism that exists in, in the Muslim world. So you cannot concentrate on studying those things unless you also concentrate on reading the Qur'an and remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to put that proper balance back into your heart, into your mind, that you see things, inshallah, in the correct way. <clears throat> However, at the same time, to some extent, I think it is important that we study some of these topics and we understand what is going on, because also our judgment of each other is sometimes colored by the fact that we are ignorant of certain facts that maybe others are well aware of. And we judge things based on what we know, and we make conclusions about others due to our lack of knowledge of certain things that have occurred. So we may take positions, we may have beliefs, based on our lack of knowledge of some things that have occurred. And plus, in addition, you know, someone once asked me, what's the point of, uh, one time I, I lectured about some uh, recent events in the Muslim world of the past, in the past century. And someone asked me, you know, what's the, uh, what's the point of that? You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, for example, 
ولن ترضى عنك اليهود ولا النصارى حتى تتبع ملتهم يعني that the Jews and the Christians they're not going to be pleased with you until you follow their way of life and clear signs from the Quran يعني so we don't even need to discuss it. we know these facts already but sometimes as in the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam sometimes seeing is believing I mean if you know the facts and you may think about those issues on a theoretical level, but when you actually see them and realize what is going on, your belief in what the Qur'an is telling you becomes firmer. And the, the reality of the Qur'an becomes very clear to you. And if, for example, in that point, there are many people, Muslims here in the United States, that cannot imagine that there's really any hatred between the Christians and Jews via versus Islam, towards Islam. And also, finally, we have to make sure that we are not fooled by the kuffar also. To be put in, in situations where they deceive us about their acts and we come to some conclusions which are not correct according to Quran and Sunnah. For example, there was a there was a Young Republicans Conference, University of Oregon. If you ever want a source of uh, humorous anecdotes, just watch a Young Republicans uh, conference. So they the speaker uh, was a woman. She's the far right uh, speaker. I forget. I can never remember her name. Anyway, this was shortly after September 11th. And so someone in the audience stood up and, and asked the question that, you know, don't you think that American foreign policy is, has something to do with the existence of these terrorists and the act that they perform? And so the woman, she answered that the last two wars that we've gone to have been on behalf of Muslims. And it seems like the Muslims are not getting the picture. The last two wars that America went to were on behalf of Muslims. Now, American, American, our Muslims here in this country, they hear this kind of thing. They might be fooled by it. First of all, do you imagine that, that, uh, America is really going to go to war on, on behalf of Muslims and that's going to be their real intent behind it? Similarly, in the, in the Newsweek magazine, one time they had this issue, I forget, I think they had something like the Quran on the cover. And they had an, arg, uh, they had an article in there, and also the, uh, the author of that artic, uh, article, Christopher Dickey, he mentioned the fact that Americans defended Muslims against the likes of Saddam Hussein and Slobodan Milosevic was ignored because for bin, Laden's, for bin Laden's bloody-minded purposes, it had to be. So here again, they're trying to paint America as this great defender of Muslims. Defending Muslims from Saddam Hussein. And defending Muslims from Milosevic. And these are the kind of issues that, if you allow yourself just to listen to the mainstream media and so forth, you might be duped into believing that this is the case. That America is actually our friend, and they've come to our defense in many, in, in many, on many occasions. And I think if you take the time to analyze it a little bit closer, you'll find that maybe, in fact, what they're claiming is not true whatsoever. However, at the same time, <clears throat> I must uh, emphasize the fact that we cannot put the blame for our problems we cannot put all the blame for our problems on the disbelievers as I talked about before and in the battle of Uhud the defeat at the battle of Uhud was because of what we as Muslims did and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also in another place in the Quran reminds us وَمَا أَصَابَكُمْ مِنْ مُصِيبَةٍ فَبِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِيكُمْ وَيَعْفُوَانْ كَثِيرٌ That any musibah, any affliction that afflicts you is the result of what 
your own hands have earned. And he, yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, overlooks a lot. And in other words, the afflictions that come to us, that come to us as a Muslim ummah, is the result of our own actions. First and foremost, they are the result of our own actions. Our own turning away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our own ignorance of the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we can never put the blame of what occurs to us completely at the hands of the kuffar and say all of this is because of the kuffar. We have to look to ourselves and say, look, it is because of our own weakness, of our own negligence, of our own forgetfulness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed this to occur to the Muslim ummah. And in fact, in the hadith of the Prophet the Prophet said, it will be soon that the ummah, the other nations will come and attack you or come to you like the one who is eating food comes to his plate. And when the Sahaba <coughs> when the when the Sahaba when the Sahabi asked him, you know, is it at that time is this because we're going to be in a small we're going to be a small number? And that's why they're going to easily come and just attack us like someone eating from a plate. The Prophet ﷺ will tell him, no, it's not because of your small number. But you will become like the froth on the sea. Now we talk so much about we are one billion Muslims. But we are, as the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ describes us, and we are like the froth on the sea. We are just being pushed around, have no strength of our own. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove the awe from the hearts of your enemies and will put in your hearts, will put al-wahan. And when the Prophet ﷺ was asked, what is this al-wahan? The Prophet ﷺ said, حُبُّ الدُّنْيَا وَكَرَاهِيَةِ الْمَوْتِ The love of this dunya and hatred for death. The love of this dunya and hatred for death. When the Muslims begin to just love this dunya and their purpose in their life is for this dunya and they fear death, they fear giving up and sacrificing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows the other umm, the other nations to come to us and to attack us or to devour us like being called to uh, and like people being called to a dinner so to speak <clears throat> in particular if you study for example in the past century the last century if you study uh, what has been the West's attitude towards Islam first of all and that's where we have to start with by the way we have to start with the West's attitude towards Islam. It has been clear from a long, from many years ago, that the West has recognized that Islam is really a threat to them. This is first, this first was expressed clearly by the West themselves. You can trace it back even before much of the Islamic movement existed that they recognize that a threat to them is in fact the West. Richard Nixon, for example. Richard Nixon, who was president, when was he president? 68 to 72, at least, right? He's the one who took us out of Vietnam, right? <laughs> it's amazing how history can be changed so easily, you know, like, oh. Nixon was this great anti-war hero. <clears throat> Nixon said that Islam is going to become a geopolitical force and such a danger to the West that the West will be forced to cooperate with Moscow to face this opposition in the Islamic world. 
the West is going to be able, is going to be forced to cooperate with Russia, the Soviets, the communists, the socialists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they were not really communists, they weren't anything. <laughs> the story, there's a story of a joke, of, or actually it's a story in Belgrade. You know, Belgrade, after the fall of socialism or communism, somebody wrote on, on a wall, bring us back socialism, because, you know, life was miser- miserable when capitalism entered. <laughs> so someone wrote on the wall, bring us back socialism. And somebody else wrote before it, we never had socialism. And so the first guy went back, bring us back what we had before. <laughs> so here Richard Nixon is saying, our arch enemy, if you know Richard Nixon, he was one of those big anti-communists, you know, just like he was a, like a pre-Reagan Reagan. He's saying we're going to have to work with Moscow to fight this Islamic force. And that the, that the Islam and West are opposites. And we have to be, the West has to be ready to meet this Islamic challenge. And actually when you look at what has happened since the fall of the Soviet Union. They are in fact working together. To fight Islam. Margaret Thatcher, you all remember uh, Margaret Thatcher, someone who was quoted by someone, by the way, as showing that the uh, hadith of the Prophet must not be an authentic hadith that says the people will not prosper if their leader is a ruler. And and the person pointed to Margaret Thatcher, of all people. After the fall of, uh, after the fall of the Soviets, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, Basically, NATO was a response to the Warsaw Pact. NATO was a response to the, so, the, the Socialist Pact to defend the West against the Socialists. So after the fall of Socialism, NATO had no purpose, really. They had to look for a purpose to continue to exist. And Margaret Thatcher gave them the purpose. She said that Minato must be preserved in order to face the Islamic danger. And one of the uh, one of the CIA officials during the Reagan years, <coughs> he was talking about while working in Reagan. He said there was a gen- genuine visceral fear of Islam in Washington as a force that was utter, utterly alien to American thinking, and that really scared us. Senior people at the Pentagon and elsewhere were much more concerned about Islam than communism. This was during the Reagan years. They were much more concerned about Islam than communism. It was almost obsessive fear leading to a mentality on our part that you should use any stick to beat a dog to stop the advance of Islamic fundamentalism. So what he's saying here is that they should use any force whatsoever that they have to stop Islamic fundamentalism. Didn't even say Islamic extremism. He said Islamic fundamentalism. Use any stick that you can use to stop Islamic fundamentalism. And when we, when we discuss the current situation, and especially when the Kufars come to us and discuss the current situation, why do they hate us? Remember all that talk, why do they hate us? Why do you also, what is the real purpose behind your hatred for Islam and the Muslim world? Why during the Reagan years that you have such a fear of Islam that you should, that, that one of the CIA officials could describe it as saying you should use any stick to beat the dog? Before you even ask why do they hate us talking about the Muslims hating America, the first question is, why does America take this stance towards Islam from the beginning? What was the rational stance that you, or the, the rationale behind the stance that you've taken? And the steps that you have implemented, which are clearly going to, to, to result in violent interaction between the two civilizations. Why do you also, what is the real purpose behind your hatred? For Islam and the Muslim world. 
why during the Reagan years that you have such a fear of Islam that you should that, that one of the CIA officials could describe it as saying you should use any stick to beat the dog. Before you even ask why do they hate us talking about the Muslims hating America, the first question is why does America take this stance towards Islam from the beginning? What was the rational stance that you, or the, the rationale behind the stance that you've taken? And the steps that you have implemented, which are clearly going to, re, to, to result in violent interaction between the two civilizations. Oh, and of course we can't forget Israel's role in all of this and also in propagating this kind of fear among the Americans. Israel, at one time, it had a very important role in the Middle East, and that was to uh, to destroy and to fight the kind of Arab nationalism that was growing and developing in that area. But now its major role is to help in the fighting against Islamic fundamentalism. And in fact, uh, it's Haq Rabin, he said that Islamic fundamentalism is spreading out of the Middle East. The world must follow Israel's role in fighting this movement. 